will be in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And we're going to start our Bible reading at verse number 14. Again, before we come to our Bible reading, let's seek the Lord in prayer together and ask his help as we come to this very familiar passage, as, as you'll see. And trust the Lord will use this in each of our hearts today. Let's pray. Our Father, with your word open before us this evening, we pray that you would take the truth of what you have recorded for us in Scripture, this familiar story of this man who brought his son to be healed, to have a demon cast out. We pray that you would give us understanding as to the record of this in Scripture and how it would apply to each of our own lives. We pray that you would use it in a mighty way to help and encourage each one of us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Mark chapter 9, you have uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. It's what we have in the early part of this chapter, and we're, we're skipping that record and beginning the reading in verse number 14 at the end of the Mount of Transfiguration. And beginning in verse number 14, we read, And when he came to his disciples, that is, Christ is the he that's being referred to there. So when Christ came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And whithersoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they could cast, should cast him out, and they could not. He answereth him, and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was as one dead, insomuch that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Amen. We'll end 
the Bible reading there at the end of verse number 29. No doubt you have heard the old saying, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. You've heard that before. Well, I would submit to you that the Christian is the only person who is able to do such a thing. I would submit to you that an unbeliever is not able to make lemonade out of life's lemons. And we all know that it is true that life sometimes will give us a lemon. We know that to be the truth. But the Christian is the only one who's able to make lemonade because otherwise all you have is just lemon juice. And lemon juice is sour. You have to have water and you have to have sugar in order to make lemonade out of lemons. And the Christian is the only one who has any sugar. I would submit to you that the grace of the gospel in our hearts and and a rock-solid faith in the purpose of God through Christ in our lives is the sugar that is necessary that only we as Christians have to add to the lemon juice of life to make any lemonade that's worth having. The believer has nothing. He, he has no hope. He has nowhere to turn with the lemons of life. And it's just sour. He can pretend that things are okay. Common grace is such that sometimes things do work out okay, even for the unbeliever. But they have, they have no commodities to use to sweeten the bitter pill of life. Unfortunately, this is too often our experience. We are dealt sometimes a tough blow. We find ourselves in situations and circumstances that are very, very difficult to deal with. And often, even as believing people, we, we know that we need to pray and we need to seek the Lord. And, and, and intellectually, you know, mentally, theologically, we know what we're supposed to do. But it's difficult. It's hard. We're faced sometimes with situations that, from at least our perspective, they just seem to be hopeless. We've, we've weighed all the issues We've, we've tried to analyze the situation. We know the people involved. We know the circumstances that have presented themselves. What do we do? How do we respond? Where do you even start? And sometimes we, we come to these situations of life and we think that they're just hopeless. We, we cannot with our eye, see any way forward. And we're just at a loss as to what to do. What is going to be next? How to handle this? Well, in this passage of Scripture, we are presented with a man who is at a point in life where he has come to the conclusion that things are now hopeless. He has already tried everything he knew to do to help his poor son. And when he arrived, his disciples failed in being able to cast out this demon. 
And you'll see in verse number 22, at the end of that verse, after he describes something that happens, he, he questions even the ability of Christ with that word if. If thou canst do anything. I read between the lines here in in the emotions of this man who loves his child so much. But I read between the lines here after what has fallen out with the disciples' inability and now this crowd that has gathered in verse number 14 and the chaos and the commotion of the bickering and the arguing and the mocking between the scribes and the disciples, this man now, he wonders... I don't know if even this Jesus can do anything about the problem that I have. This is hopeless. And now he doesn't know. If you have ever loved anyone in your life, cared about anyone, uh, you, have, you have seen sometimes in, in those that you care about and those that you love, you, you've watched right before your very eyes a train wreck. And how to step in, how to intervene. Maybe it's, maybe it's in a family member. Maybe it's with someone else in the church. And you look at, at the decisions that they're making. You look at, at the life choices and, and the direction that they're headed. And, and everything in you says this is the wrong choice. They're going the wrong way. And how to step in, how to intervene. Maybe you've spoken to them. You've tried to address the problem. And they won't listen. They don't care. They don't see the problem. But yet you know, and everyone else that cares about them knows, you're going the wrong way. And you've tried. And you think, what more can I do? How can, how can anything be changed? You see, this man at some point... In dealing with his son, had heard stories. He'd heard about this man named Jesus, who was casting out demons in other places, who was making blind people to be able to see, who was making lame people to be able to walk. And as he heard the stories of Jesus, he thought, this is the man that can help me. And so he goes. We don't know how far he came. We don't know where he traveled from, but he, he came to where he had heard Christ was. And he found the disciples, just nine of them, because Christ and Peter, James, and John were up on the Mount of Transfiguration. But there were, there were nine disciples. And, and he brings his child. And the disciples try. And the disciples are even confused. We see at verse number 28, they asked the question to the Lord privately, why can we not cast out this demon? And they did try. They, they made... Their efforts to, to cast the demon out, that's a, that's a sermon in itself, and we're not really dealing with that aspect of it. But the disciples had tried to cast out this demon, and they couldn't do it. And this man now is very perplexed because they had cast out demons before. But what, what's wrong with me? Why Is my situation so different? Is my situation so bad that even Jesus can't help? And this man is at this place in life where... He, he, he thinks things are hopeless. And so this evening, that's what I want to preach to you on that subject. What to do when things seem hopeless. What do you do when things seem to be hopeless? 
might not necessarily be facing a circumstance like this exactly right now. But the Christian life is full of trials. The Christian life is full of problems. I trust the Lord will use this in each of our hearts as we look at this particular passage and try to answer that question. What to do? What do we do when things seem hopeless? I want to begin by examining the question, what is it that makes some circumstances seem hopeless? We all experience different things. We have different problems, and and some problems come along, and they're not that bad. They're difficult, and and maybe we need to seek a husband or wife for advice, or maybe go to a pastor for advice, or we, we, we sort this out. The Lord's help, obviously, I, I, don't, I don't mean to, to not mean that, but things go okay. But other times, circumstances are different. And I think in this passage, we see some indication of what makes it so difficult sometimes and, and why some problems just seem to be so bad, even to the point of, of hopeless. Look at verse 21. The first reason is longevity. He asked his father, Jesus asked the father, how long is it ago since this came upon him? And the answer is of a child, of a child. Uh, there's a couple different Greek words that are translated as child, but this particular word would indicate to us an, an age of infancy, a very young child. We don't know exactly how old this boy is in this particular passage, but I think this is my opinion, I think it's reasonable for us to assume that this boy is perhaps a young teenager, uh, perhaps, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. We, we're not told, we don't know, and I, I admit that we don't know. But it's been going on for a long time. Since this child was an infant, and as this child has grown, the episodes have been over and over. So there's some length to this that makes this father so desperate to come to Christ. You can think with me of a few other examples in Scripture. You remember that woman with the issue of blood. Twelve years she had dealt with that. For twelve years. And it's interesting, Luke, the physician, he tells us that you know, she, had, she had spent her money on many physicians. She had tried everything she knew to try and was just finding no help. And she comes and she finds Christ in the crowd and she touches but the hem of his garment and she's made whole. But for 12 years this had gone on. You remember that man at the pool of Bethesda, John chapter 5. We're told there 38 years this man was at that pool. For 38 years he wasn't able to get to the water. For 38 years this man was in his desperate case. And the Lord comes and asks him just the very simple question, wilt thou be made whole? And of course he was. Maybe some of you feel trapped. Trapped in your circumstances. Trapped in a particular situation. I don't mean to meddle and I don't mean to upset anything. But I've had experiences with friends in my own life not to be naive enough To know that even in smiling faces through the front door of a church, 
at home, there can be serious marriage problems. I know I'm dealing with just a few people, and I, I, don't, I don't mean to insinuate, but just by point of application, there can be perhaps serious marriage problems, or maybe it's not in yours, but you know of problems in other families that you love, maybe even children, maybe even other relatives someplace else. And you look at this situation and you, you, you deal with these circumstances and the people that are involved and how can, there be any, how can there be any way forward? How can there be any solution to this? Maybe it's a child that's strayed and is wayward with the Lord. Maybe it's debt. Maybe it's who knows. But you look at that circumstance and you think, this is hopeless. I've already tried everything I know to do. And this has gone on for so long. How can it be helped? What about complexity? Is that not something that sometimes drives us to a feeling of hopelessness? You, you look at the complexity of what uh, this poor father was dealing with. Go back to verse number seven. I'm sorry, 17. And he says, Master, I've brought to you my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And whithersoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out. And they could not. According to verse number 25, this man was not only mute, as we see in verse number 17, but verse 25, also when Christ casts him out, he he speaks of the, the mute, but he also mentions the fact that he's deaf. So this, this child is epileptic. I think that's the, the medical terminology we would use today, this gnashing and phoneth and, and you know, cast into the fire kind of thing. There, there's epilepsy. He's deaf. He's mute. He's demon-possessed. The demon possession from verse 25 is causing the deafness and, and the muteness, and, and the demon is taking advantage of the epilepsy and throwing this kid into the fire and just destruction and destruction and destruction. It's an awful, horrible situation that, that would baffle the, the best of medical professionals that we would have even today, much less 2,000 years ago, how to deal with this, how to even help, where to even start. And we find a father at his wit's end with the complexity of the problems. We found this sometimes. We've, we've talked uh, at, at the table over at the chaplers about uh, some Mormons that we've dealt with in the past or Jehovah's Witnesses that come to the door. And you, you begin to try to talk to them and, and they, they present to you their understanding of the Bible and, and these things. And it's so convoluted and it's so messed up. And where do you even start? Or, or you try to witness to a coworker at, at work and you begin to talk to them about something from the Bible and they ask you a question And just by the very nature of the question, it shows that they don't understand anything at all about what the Bible is about or teaches. And you're just beside yourself as, where do I even start with this person to explain anything? Because they literally know nothing about the Bible. I can't take anything for granted that they already know. And it's so difficult what to do, where to even start. How about the opposition that we face sometimes? Look at verse number 14. When Christ came down from the Mount of Transfiguration with his disciples, 
he finds this multitude questioning with them. I think, I don't mean to be silly in saying it this way, but I think the Bible's being nice here. Uh, arguing, right? This is what's going on. We, we see this debate and arguing, questioning with them. Uh, the scribes, they don't believe that Christ is legitimate. They don't believe he's able to do anything. And they have been trying so many times to catch Christ in a, a trap and, and back him into a corner. And this is their aha moment where the, the disciples have failed. They're not able to cast out this demon. And here are the scribes, I told you so. And the disciples are trying to rebut back and give their excuses. And you can only just imagine the chaos that is taking place there. And verse 28 does tell us the disciples themselves, they were baffled. What happened? What what went wrong? Why could we not cast out this demon? Well, our problems that we face, uh, we often face great opposition as well. Perhaps not necessarily from the outside, but I think if you're anything like me, more often than not, the opposition is from right here. There's opposition from my own unbelieving heart that this is hopeless. This cannot be changed. This is just, we just give up. And Satan will whisper in your ear all sorts of lies as to why it's hopeless, convincing you how hopeless it is, that the Lord doesn't love you anymore. If the Lord loved you, he wouldn't let this happen to you. If the Lord cared, if the Lord was really able to do this, he wouldn't let this bad of thing happen. It's because of all the sins you've committed that now you find yourself in this problem. It's, it's because of your failings from the past. Well, now they've come back to bite you. Right? And, and, and Satan would whisper all these things into our ear and, and, and just beat us down more and more and more and more. But we have to identify Satan's lies as exactly what they are, just lies, because he is the great adversary of the believer. He will do anything to oppose the faith of the believer, to put the believer down, to kick the believer while he's down. And that opposition comes many times. But at the root of it all is that that unbelief, that, that Hebrews refers to as an evil heart of unbelief. And that unbelief, when it settles in, drives us to a feeling of hopelessness. And that's where this man is. Because he responds to the Lord, I believe, I do, there is faith in there somewhere, but help my unbelief. I'm struggling. I'm having a hard time with this. And he is driven quite low. How many times have you and I found ourselves in that same place in prayer, in wrestling with the Lord, with the problems that we face? Lord, I believe you're able to change this situation. Lord, I believe you're able to step in. I believe you're able to do a miracle. But deep down, there's that whisper of, this is really just hopeless. Nothing's going to change. We believe, we want to believe We try to believe, but it's very difficult. And we find in verse 9, this man, I'm sorry, verse, I'm sorry, in Mark 9, we find this man even questioning 
whether or not the Lord could do anything. I've already insinuated that and mentioned that from verse number 22. The way he puts his question, if thou canst do anything. I thought, I thought, I thought that this was the right place. I thought this is where I'd get answers to my problem. But now I'm not sure anymore. And if you can do anything, just, just have compassion on us and help us. I don't even know if the demon can be cast out anymore. I just want help. And that's where this man is. He's backed into this place of, of unbelief and difficulty. But you notice how Christ responds. He responds directly to this man. And he turns this man's question on its head. And he responds to this man in kind. Look at verse 23. You asked if I can do anything. Well, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. All things are possible to him that believeth. This man is very different than another episode in the book of Mark. I can't help but make the contrast between these two men. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 1. Look at Mark chapter 1. Let's look at the difference in, in question, the difference in approach that we see from this other man in Mark chapter 1. Look at verse 40. It says, And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. It's a far different thing to question the willingness of Christ as it is to question the ability of Christ. We find this poor father driven to this hopeless place that he was questioning the very ability of Jesus to do anything. This leper did not question Jesus' ability. He simply questioned his willingness. If you're willing to heal me, then you're able to do that. This man, in his hopeless situation, Lord, I don't know if he can do anything. I don't know if even, even the God of heaven can fix this. That's a bad place to be. But I wonder if you've ever been there. I wonder if in your heart you have ever experienced this low place in the circumstances of life. I think if we're all honest with ourselves, it's a place we've all been. Maybe recently, maybe currently, maybe tomorrow. But what to do when things seem hopeless? And the solution is simple. And the simplicity of the solution is what often messes us up. The simplicity of the answer to this question, what to do when things are seemingly hopeless, the solution itself, in its simplicity, is where we often stumble. The solution is to simply take your seemingly hopeless circumstance to Christ. You already know that to be the answer to the question. Even when I posed it, what to do when things seem hopeless? Well, you go to the Lord. You already, you already know that. I'm not telling you anything that is new for you. But that's where I say the simplicity of the answer to the question is where we often mess up. John Calvin, in commenting on Mark 9, this portion, 
He says, we are worse than stupid if a condition so wretched does not arouse us to prayer. We are worse than stupid if a condition so wretched does not arouse us to prayer. And so the solution is to simply take your seemingly hopeless circumstance to Christ. Now, having said that, I want to to look at that answer by looking at what the answer is not. And so the answer is not, I did not say, take the solution that you have come up with to Christ and ask Christ to execute that solution. It's a very different thing. And that's where we often fail. We often think, I have this figured out. I know how this is going to play out. I know how this is going to work. And we go to the Lord in prayer with our blueprint. And we say, Lord, here's what you need to do. Here here is the answer to the problem. I'm not able to execute this answer. And so I need you to do this. I need you to, to fulfill this blueprint that I've come up with. But yet that's not the answer. That's where we often mess up. The other thing that's not right is to come and and argue with the Lord and to explain to him why you don't deserve these problems. I mean, you get up every morning and read your Bible. And you're always at church. And we've been faithful with family devotions. And we've been faithful and I've done this and I've done the other thing. And Lord, I don't I don't deserve problems like this to come my way. I deserve better than this. So Lord, you have to change this. You have to fix this. Well, even in enunciating it that way, you can understand and know the pride and the arrogance that there is in that. Right? Job, you know, we're we're privy to the behind the scenes of Job's problems. And Job legitimately could have said, Lord, I've been faithful. Because he he really was. And that was the very reason, right? Because Satan comes and the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, well, the only reason he follows you is because you've blessed him so many ways. And the Lord says, no, that's not, that's not right. Afflict him and see what happens. And so Satan afflicts Job. And Job blesses the Lord. And Satan says, well, it's this reason. And the Lord says, okay, well, you know, do some more. And Job never falters. Now his friends come along with all kinds of bad advice and say, well, Job, you must have sinned. You must, you must have committed some sin you don't know about. And Job said, no, my heart's innocent before the Lord. I mean, sure, I'm a sinner, but I've, I've not done anything to deserve this. Job doesn't understand what's going on behind the scenes. The Lord does. We reading the book do. But Job is in great affliction. But Job doesn't come to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't deserve this. He, he literally didn't. He was, he was chosen out by God because... He was the most faithful of followers of the Lord, but yet still afflicted. I didn't say that we come up with our solution, take our solution and say, Lord, you need to, you need to work out this plan. And I also didn't say that 
you know, we need to figure out things ourselves, and then thank the Lord for giving us such a good, good brain, good common sense to work through the problems. You know, I've got counseling prowess and, and I'm able to figure it out. But see, that's where we mess up because it's, it's just the simplicity of the problem where we often fail. We want so badly, we want so badly to fix things ourselves, and then come to the Lord with them. And we, we say, because we know it's right theology, that the Lord gets all the glory. But yet deep down, we want to, we want to think that we at least had some hand in it. We, we were able to do something to help. And I say, that's where we mess up. We just bring it to the Lord and we leave it. We leave it there. Because you know, and this is what I've come to learn and I have to be honest and say, even in the past week, through various things in my own life, sometimes it is hopeless. And it's okay to admit that. It's hopeless. Because I can't do anything about it. I've already tried. And I can't affect any change. And there is a real sense in which I have to step back from it, I give up. Because I can't do anything. And the only thing that's left is a miracle. That's literally the only thing left is a miracle. And I can't do those. I can't do miracles. And so I have to say, Lord, this is yours. I give up. It's hopeless to me. It's hopeless for me. I can't do any more. But the Lord can do it. And we literally just have to leave it there. Lord, you're able. Because without a miracle, we've got nothing. But you see, the simplicity of this answer is the hope of the believer. Because we're told over and over in Scripture that when we come to the Lord with the difficulties of this life, We will be received by him. He will not turn us away. He will not cast us out. Him that cometh unto me, the Bible says, John 6, I will in no wise cast out. Now, we use that verse for evangelism. And that's an evangelistic text. And we need to tell sinners, you come to Christ and Christ will receive you. But I would submit to you that the truth of that verse applies to me and applies to you as a mature believer in Christ just as much as it applies to a homeless, vagabond, down-and-out drunkard. Because if he comes to Christ, he's not going to be turned away. And how much more is that true for me, who am a child of God? We looked this morning at the fact that we have an inheritance in Christ Jesus because we're in union with Christ. How much more true is that verse for me, for you, as a believer in Christ? If you come to Christ, you're not going to be turned away. You're going to be received by him. You're not going to be rejected by the God of heaven. You will never find an example You'll never find an example in Scripture of a man who came to Christ and was turned away and was rejected. The only place that you can find anything that is remotely close to that 
is that story of the rich young ruler. But he came to Christ, but in his coming to Christ, he came on his own terms. And he came with his own agenda. And the Lord answered him. The Lord was faithful in pointing this man in the right direction. And it says the man went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. Christ didn't reject him. In that episode, he is the one who walked away. But he wasn't rejected by the Lord. This is a little side thing. Press pause on the sermon. Little side thing. An interesting theory. I can't back this up by any text of scripture. But this is an interesting theory. I have often wondered, and and I'm not the only one. I'm not inventing this. This is not novel with me. But I've often wondered if the rich young ruler and Joseph of Arimathea are not one and the same. There are other theologians and other commentators that have hypothesized the same thing, that this rich young ruler, he was converted, you know, off the script, out of, out of you know, not recorded for us in Scripture, but he was converted. And he was Joseph of Arimathea that prepared the Lord's body and provided a tomb at the very end. We don't know that. But we know in the moment when, he, when Christ dealt with him, that at that moment he was not willing to give up his idols. But I believe he was converted later. We'll see. We'll see when we get to heaven, if, if that's the truth. I don't know. I can't say that dogmatically. It's purely my opinion. Uh, but I've often wondered. But that's the, only, that's the only place where Christ deals with a man so directly. And that man leaves at the moment unconverted, unchanged, unhelped. Although he was helped. He was faithfully given the truth. You know, it doesn't matter what your problem is. It doesn't matter how long it's lasted. It doesn't matter how complex it is. It doesn't matter how much opposition you faced along the way. Christ doesn't put any barriers to us coming to him. He says, come. Come unto me. You, you labor, you're heavy laden, you come to me. You're not going to be turned away. Christ will receive us when we come to him. And here's the simplicity of this answer. We just come to the Lord and we leave it there. And Christ will receive us. The other reason I say that the answer is to come and and to leave our problem with Christ is because Christ is the one who really cares. He he really does care. Uh, Look at verse 21. There's some emotion here, even on the part of Christ. He doesn't weep like he does at Lazarus' tomb in this particular place, but he listens to what this father has to say. And Christ asks a question. It's a searching question. It's a, it's a question that Christ already knows the answer to. He's not asking this for information. But he's, answered, he, he's asking this question to probe into this man's heart, to get into where this man is. How long is it ago since this came unto him? Uh, the Lord's getting to the heart of this man. What are you really dealing with? What, what's your heart in this? Reveal to me your sorrows in this. And the man does. Christ was one who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Christ knows all of our problems. He knows all of the situations that we think are hopeless. Christ knows what it is to be poor. 
He was a man who had no place to lay his head. Christ is a man who knows what it is to be friendless. We're told in the scriptures that at one point they all forsook him and fled. Peter had cut off Malchus's ear, you remember. And Peter had said, Lord, I'll die. And at that moment, they all forsook him and fled. And then just a couple hours later, Peter denies that he even knew who Jesus was. Christ knows what it is to be tempted in the wilderness three times by Satan himself, tempted with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. He was tempted in all those points like as we are, yet with no sin. But Christ knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to be falsely accused. He knows what it is to be mistreated. He knows what it is to be physically beaten. He knows what it is to be filled with sorrow and grief. He knows what it is to lose a loved one. You remember when Jesus was 12 and Mary and Joseph forgot him in Jerusalem? And they get a few, you know, a little way down the road and, hey, where's Jesus? And I thought you had him. Well, I thought you had him. And he was back in the temple. That's the last time in the scriptures that we read anything about Joseph. And most understand it to be the case that Joseph passed away. Joseph, Joseph died. Jesus' earthly father. He was, Joseph was a carpenter. And Jesus was known as the carpenter's son. And we understand him to, to be applied in that trade, at least we would assume through his 20s, before he entered into his public ministry. But Joseph's father is not on the scene when we get to Jesus' public ministry, and most have understood him to, to have died. So Jesus knows what it is to lose a loved one. He knows what it is to be misunderstood and misrepresented, even by family and friends. Jesus knows all these things. But when he deals with this man, he, he told them to, to bring the child to him. Because the Lord really cared about this man. He cared about his child. And then the third reason here is because Christ is the one who really is the only one able to help. And that's why I say sometimes we just have to admit it is, it is helpless. It is hopeless. Barring a miracle, we can't do anything. And we just have to let our hands off of it. And we can't manipulate the circumstance anymore. We, we, there's, no, there's nothing else we can say. There's nothing else we can do. That We just we trust the Lord for a miracle. That's all we have left. You see, Christ is able to do it. If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. All things are possible. To him that believeth. Because you see, when we bring our case to the Lord, we're bringing our case to one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom. He knows what is the very best thing to do. He knows the very best solution. Yet he's also infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his power. He is able to do the very best thing. So you put his wisdom and you put his power together. He knows what is best. He's able to do what is best. In an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable way, 
Christ is able to help. And so from that perspective for the Christian, for the believer, we have to come to the conclusion that nothing is truly hopeless. I said, we have to back away and we have to admit it's hopeless. As far as I'm concerned, it's hopeless because I can't do anything. But it's not hopeless. You, know, you, you pray for an unsaved loved one. If they're still breathing on this side of eternity, it's not hopeless. As long as they're drawing breath here, it's not hopeless. The Lord can save them. But what more can you do? Christ must do it. Whatever your problem is, whatever your circumstance is, at the end of the day, the Lord is able. And that's where we have to leave ourselves, in his hands. One who cares and one who is able. Able even to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. One who is able even in the midst of the circumstance to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. To literally undo the mess of the past. The Lord is able. So may we trust him in that. Amen.